Uh, in John's gospel, uh, he has a series of, of stories post-resurrection. And um, this, this, this two stories comes right after actually a very unique telling of, of the resurrection from Mary Magdalene. And Mary Magdalene has uh, failed to see Jesus um, at first and recognize him. And it is only when Jesus speaks to her and says her name that her, her eyes are truly opened and she sees. And this is a, a, a theme in the Gospel of John. Truly being able to see. Right vision is something that runs right through the Gospel of John. And it's clearly at issue here with this disciple Thomas. That Thomas is not there to see Jesus appear. Um, Jesus does this thing where he just walks into closed and locked, locked rooms. And this is um, some of the things that we can't describe about the, the resurrection. When we say Jesus is risen from the dead, we mean he's bodily, physically resurrected, and he is who he was. He's physically recognizable, and yet there's also something different about him because he's, you know, appearing in, in closed rooms. He wasn't doing that before. So something, he's the same, but something has changed. But John also wants you to know he's still physically, he's not a ghost. He's not risen from the dead. And, and the question, is this a ghost, is maybe what Thomas is kind of concerned about. Because he's not there when Jesus appears to the disciples in the room the first time. And so he says, when I can touch him, then I'll know y'all didn't see a ghost. Because dead people don't come back to life, which, granted, it's true. Dead people tend to not come back to life. So Thomas says, okay, you know, things happen when you're grieving and, and, and afraid because they're clearly frightened. So when I can actually touch him and verify that he's physically alive, then and only then will I believe. And Thomas um, kind of gets the, the label you know, Thomas doubting Thomas because of this. Um, and he does. He, he doubts. It's true. He's a skeptic. Uh, as I meditated on this story and thought about it this, this week, why did Jesus come when Thomas was not there? Why was Jesus' first appearance when Thomas was not there? It's clear that Jesus has supernatural knowledge, right? The second time he appears, he knows what Thomas has said. And so he says, without being prompted, here's my hands, here's my side, put your hand there. He clearly knows. It's not that Jesus uh, saw a, a room and said, well, I'm just going to kind of pop in there and whoever's there, you know, surprise to them. I hope somebody's there. He didn't pop in and say, oh, well, I got most of you. He came on purpose when Thomas was not there. And I've never noticed before how long the gap was between his first appearance and his second. There were eight days between the first time he appears to the disciples in John's gospel and when he makes his appearance before Thomas. For eight days, Thomas had missed out on everything that his friends, at this point, you would assume, 
at least some of them, were his very best friends in the world. And they had had their grief and their fear relieved by Jesus. And for eight days, he was the one, the one in the room who had not had this experience. Personally, I cannot imagine what those eight days felt like. I, I know myself. And all I can imagine is how bitter I would be and how resolute I would be in my skepticism because of my bitterness. Everybody else was confessing something that he could not confess because he had missed through no fault of his own. There is no indication that they had received a note ahead of time saying, Jesus saying, meet me here at this time. And Thomas was like, I'm out. I'm not coming for that. Through no apparent fault of his own and seemingly through the choice of Jesus, he was not there when Jesus came the first time. And I can't, I can't read into what is not there. Right? I cannot tell you for sure what he felt and what he thought. I do know that he wasn't convinced by their testimony and that he was apparently the only one of whom that was true at that point. How isolating and lonely it must be for him in that moment. And in my experience, this is precisely how doubt functions in every one of us. You need to understand and to hear, many of you have experienced this, probably all of you, doubt in the life of the believer is a force that can be both normal, ordinary, and even good, but left uncontrolled is often a riptide that takes you out to sea all by yourself. Tim Keller says that doubt is the antibodies of faith. That we, we often believe that doubt, the presence of doubt, is disqualifying and even, even quite literally damnable. That many of us have grown up in church contexts that have said, if you experience any kind of doubt at all, you are going straight down the tubes. So you better chase out any feeling of doubt inside your heart. Because if there is yet any doubt inside of you, you will get swept out to sea. And doubt, you can face and make two kinds of mistakes. One mistake to make is to believe that what is required of you is certainty. That if I feel any kind of doubt inside of me, what I need is to be absolutely certain, which is both emotional and rational in scope. I need to know everything that is possible to know, and I need sort of almost scientific evidence to know anything, and I need to feel absolutely 100% certain. And so you face your doubt, you square up to your doubt, and you say, I need to get those ingredients, both the feeling and the information, to just banish any sense of doubt inside of me. I, I think that we can say that is the mistake of certainty. 
But there's another kind of mistake that you can make, which is much, uh, much more popular, maybe just as popular now. I don't know which one of these camps is bigger, which is to idolize your doubt. Our culture today has decreasing amounts of appreciation for, for fields of knowing like certainty. Those things are less and less appealing to people. It feels more authentically spiritual to constantly be doubting and to worship and to idolize your doubt, to, to make doubt praiseworthy. It means that you are a more skeptical, more spiritually open, and, and that all too appealing phrase, authentic, to just reside in your doubt and to do nothing with it but to let it live in your house and to carry, it, carry you wherever it wishes to carry you. Both of these things, I think, are mistakes. For one thing, the realm of certainty is ab almost absolutely impossible for almost all kinds of knowing anything and certainly the kind of thing that God wants with you. Jesus invites Thomas, chides him, and invites his belief, not his certainty, but his trust. And trust is personal, it is relational, and it is confession that you cannot be certain. So I, I was talking about this with my students in Montreal. And I was giving the example of my wife, my relationship with my wife, okay? At that point, when I was giving this example, she was not in the room. My wife is currently in the room. Ballard, make sure your mother is looking at me because I'm talking about her and I don't want her to get mad at me. My wife is in the room, right? She's here. Later, she will not be here. She will not be here. When my wife is... What's up? When my wife is not here, okay, I cannot be certain that she is not cheating on me. I can't be certain of that. I do not, have not purchased a drone to fly over her head, to monitor her at all times so I can pull out my phone and say, yes, she is not cheating on me. I know it because I am watching her. I can't watch her at all times. Frankly, I don't want to, Okay. I have other things to do. That would be boring. So am I certain in that moment that my wife is not cheating on me? No, I am not certain. Am I at all concerned that she is? No. Because I trust her. I know her. I know her person. I know our relationship. And I trust her. Faith does not require a life in which you have a drone moving over everything that there is to know, that you can put your eyes on all things and be absolutely certain at all moments. In fact, that is an impossible kind of knowing with God. What God instead invites you to is a relationship of trust. Do you know my character? Do you know our relationship? Despite the fact that you cannot be certain of all things, will you trust me? Will you trust me? I trust my wife. I trust Jesus. Now, certainly, there is also this other kind of mistake, that it is somehow more virtuous to be doubting. 
The idea that you cannot know anything is also a mistake. Remember, the ingredients of trust are that you do know something. I trust my wife not blindly, but because I actually know her. I know her character. I've observed it. I've heard testimony from other people. I have good reasons to trust my wife. I wouldn't have married her if I didn't. And so the idea that your doubts are to be left unexamined is ridiculous. You should interrogate your doubts. You should not give your doubts the benefit of the doubt. You should say, okay, let's talk about those things. How true are they? How much should they be examined? Because God wants you to know everything that there is to know about himself and to trust him. Thomas, for eight days, is feeling potentially, he could have felt, the riptide of doubt. How easy would it have been for Thomas to not be in that room eight days later? The power of doubt left unchecked and unexamined can so often push people so far out of that room that they just give up. All of these other people feel these things, they know these things, and I cannot. I'm done. I'm out. And yet Thomas is there. And Jesus appears to him after what seems to me an exceedingly long time. Eight very long days. And when Thomas sees Jesus, he realizes, I actually don't need the thing that I thought I needed. Because Jesus says, here, you can put your hands here, wherever you needed to say, wherever you said you needed, just go ahead and do it, put it there. And instead, his response is immediate, my Lord and my God. He doesn't need what he thought he needed. Instead, Jesus gives him something better. And Thomas is not here confronted by Jesus and said, because you doubted, I am throwing you out of the room. Jesus does not do that with him. He does not say, I'm relegating you to second-class discipleship, apostleship. Jesus does not take him to task over much. He says it's blessed for people to believe without seeing. And you didn't. But he receives him. He receives him. Thomas is restored to Jesus in the context of Christian community. It's really important to see where Thomas is. He is with other Christians, this new category of Christ follower who rightly understand that Jesus is the resurrected Lord. It is in the room with other people. And it is in direct confrontation with Jesus. And this is the place where doubt is resolved. 
So much of our world today, many of you yourselves, have wrestled with the weight and the fear of doubt. There can be a kind of panic that grows, and I know because it's been me. I'm not excluded. Doubt is always knocking at my doorstep. There have been many nights, days of loneliness inside my own head and heart, hours before I have preached, where I myself have said, but what if all of this, what happens when I, when the lights go out, are you there and, and it can feel like you are standing on the edge of a cliff. And the gravity of that vacuum will pull you down into it. And it is in the context of Christian community and before the face of Jesus that you come home and you can find your reconciliation. And the reason why that is true is I think because of the story that comes before this one. Jesus appears to his disciples and he breathes on them. And he says, the Holy Spirit I give to you as a gift. And the refrain that he says twice in that first story is peace be with you. The same thing that he says to Thomas. Peace be with you be with you. What he gives that little baby infant church the authority to do is to tell people the truth that there is forgiveness in God. And when you run from him, there's unforgiveness. The very first recipient of that is one of their number. They have the opportunity to proclaim and to demonstrate to Thomas that Thomas is his own doubts and skepticism. The truth of it is that God forgives him. And he's going to be okay. And he can receive the peace of God still. You need to know, doubter, that God has patience and time for you. And your doubts may, may drive you far away into loneliness, into wilderness. But the church is meant to stand here around you and say, you can be okay. And the Holy Spirit is here to assure you that there is peace for you. Troubled though you may be, that this place is actually safe for you. So the question that we should look at together is, one, as a church, as Valley Hope, do we make room in our rooms for skeptics and doubters like Thomas? For eight days, Thomas is a part of that community, and he is very skeptical about what is then the most important thing that they could have ever believed, that Jesus himself is actually alive. And one of their number is 
hanging out with them, openly distrusting what they have said. Saying, you are an unreliable witness. I need to see for myself. Your brain may not be working. You may have seen a ghost. He is hanging out with them day after day after day. Are we, Valley Hope, a church where that is okay? That we, we, we make space for people like Thomas? Or are we so afraid of other people's doubts that we just sort of edge them out the door? You need to get right, you need to get straight, and then when you get this stuff figured out, then you come back and hang out with us. But I believe that the Christian community is meant to be a place for people like Thomas. People who've been blown around and buffeted and wounded by the forces of doubt. The, the place I want them to be is here. And if our church is not that kind of place, we are falling short of what it means to be a gospel community. We are failing to make ourselves the kind of people who would be the, be the ones who rightly witness to what Jesus has said. Is there's peace in him, that there's forgiveness when his church stands there and, and represents the gospel to people. You can be forgiven in God. So we ought to look at ourselves as a church, as Valley Hope, and say, are we the kind of place who makes room in the room for people like Thomas? And if it's not, why is that? Is it because your own doubt is lying there underneath and you are afraid of what those people will provoke in you? Is it because you think you've matured beyond it? Is it because they're too dirty for you? That needs to be interrogated. And secondly, if you are somebody who has been carrying the weight of all of this, the shame and the doubt. I can tell you what Jesus wants for you. It's for you to come see him and to have peace. And I do not know why Jesus came when Thomas was not there. I don't know. I'm not inclined to speculate. And I don't know why you are where you are now. I don't know. I'm sorry for the heaviness of your loneliness, the fear that you have felt, the anger, and the isolation. I don't know why you are where you are. But I do know that this place is where God wants to meet you. And Jesus gets to have the last word. And you should trust him. Even when you don't know everything. Even when it feels like you don't know anything. You should trust him. And he will bring you peace. Thomas, his story, is, ends outside the pages of scripture. Traditionally, what the church has testified is that Thomas becomes the apostle who loses his life furthest from Jerusalem. He, there's a cathedral in India to be believed to be the place where Thomas died, proclaiming the gospel for Jesus. Thomas is not cast out from the mission of Jesus. He is not relegated. He is so rock-solid convinced of who Jesus is. He goes to the ends of the earth to tell the truth about him.
If you are in a season of doubt, you are not condemned and dead forever. You yourself are a person who can receive the peace of God, still yet be used and redeemed by him because you have seen him and met him. He loves you. And when we, the people of God, have failed to love you, it is our failure and not yours. And I'm sorry. Our great hope, both ours and for the doubter, for the convinced and the skeptic, is there is peace of God in Christ. And he will surely seal and win that peace for us now and forever. In him and him alone is our great hope. And in him do we trust. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for working with people like us who are doubters, skeptics. We thank you that you, you chose people like us. And God, we, we open ourselves to you in confession and reception. And Father, I, I pray that you would relieve the heavy burdens that people might experience when they wrestle with doubt. I pray that you would protect them from lies that say that they must be certain or they must know nothing. And instead, Father, that you would help them to come and trust in you. I pray, Father, that you would help us as a church to be a community that is patient with one another, that would demonstrate the patience and kindness of God that leads us to love you. Father, I thank you for your gentleness and mercy with all of us. And I pray that we would come to ever more deeply rest in you, that we would, in an open-handed way, receive the blessing of Jesus, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promise of your peace. Amen.